My name is Kate and I'm the Curious Farmer. In 2012, my husband and I started Leap Farm. We apply ecological principles to try and benefit the environment while producing great tasting food. Our endeavour has led to more questions. So join me as I get all the dirt straight from the farmers, chefs, scientists and people who love to eat good food about how we can make informed decisions about the best ways to grow, shop and eat food with our health and the health of our planet in mind. Tony O'Connell is a blueberry grower who's taken a very different approach to farming blueberries compared to many of his peers. I first met him at the Hobart Farmers Market in summer and got chatting to him about his fruit and his approach to farming. He told me at that time that he uses sprays on his soil, but he only sprays biologically active microbes. My curiosity was piqued. How do spraying microbes on the soil affect the plants and their fruit? Why does this eliminate the need for synthetic chemicals and fertilisers? And what does that mean for the health of his plants and for the fruit that they produce? In this episode, I speak with Tony on his farm located in the Huin Valley in southern Tasmania. We were standing in the paddock on a stunning winter's morning with the sun on our backs and an occasional puff of wind. While we were talking, I could identify the call of at least five species of bird and the occasional disgruntled yip from Flo the Border Collie. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I enjoyed our conversation. Yeah, so I'm, my name's Tony O'Connell. We family run blueberry business. We originally came down to Grove, well actually I'll go back to my background, is in cattle and sheep farming and then we ventured out into blueberry, trialling blueberries back in the early 90s up near Deloraine and then um, we had a few issues so then I had to leave the farm because we we're going to be viable for both my dad and I to be there which was really sad because it was a beautiful spot. Um, so then I left and went and studied meteorology because we always had an interest in meteorology on the farm anyway. Um, so I did that for four years and then uh, finished that in, in the Navy, in the Defence Force and then they amalgamated a lot of the branches together which meant I, I had to spend about 90% time at sea instead of my 40% on land which sounds a bit funny but I didn't join the Navy to be at sea 90% of the time. Yeah. So I left and then I went and studied horticulture and um, did that for two years and then that was in New South Wales and then I came to Tasmania for a bit of a holiday and um, met a, a Tasmanian local and then decided this is a great place to live <laughs> and bring up a family. So I did landscaping and gardening in Hobart for about 10 years and then one day I said to my wife, I said, let's go back on the farm again and grow blueberries. And she said, why do you want to do that? <laughs> yeah, a very sage woman. <laughs> yes. So we looked, we hunted around for a year or so and finally found this place here in the top of the Huon Valley at Grove. So how big is the farm? Uh, it's 42 acres altogether, but we actually only have about 12 acres down to blueberries <clears throat> and some raspberries and some... Um, also got some thornless blackberries as a pick your own that we're developing but the rest of the farm's got um, a bit of bush on it some reserve for habitat 
because part of our whole process of what we do here is about developing the farm, because it's a monoculture crop, we want to try and make it as diverse as we can on the rest of the farm. So we have a lot of riparian zones where the water for our dam comes in along the creek. So I encourage a lot more habitat for you know, things like the eastern barred bandicoot, which is really good for, for the orchard too because they eat a lot of the cockchafer grubs. Yeah. Um, and it sort of just creates a lot of other habitat for birds and all that sort of thing as well. So most of the orchards, I guess... <laughs> If you look at it, a farmer's perspective is probably non-productive, but we don't look at it that. We look at it as a diverse habitat range for, for the farm. So did you start off farming then, the way you're farming now? No. So we started... There's always cockatoos <laughs> flavours. <laughs> I'm not sure if they're laughing at us or with us. <laughs> the apple growers don't really like them. I bet. Um, no, so our whole intention was to start an organic farm, but being a, originally an apple orchard, um, we found sort of the soil tests, we had really high copper levels, which really high copper levels in the soil, they almost, what they call, antagonise the other elements in the soil for the plants to be available, so <clears throat> we found the soil biology it was hard to get it sort of going, so we looked into a few different avenues and um, uh Looking at doing a microbe type farming, using soil health and soil biology was the way we thought to go. The, the only issue there is it is a longer process. You have a four year, three to four year turnaround, but we knew long term that was the way to go. So how long ago did you start putting the blueberries in the ground? Uh, they've been in the ground about eight years now. And how long um, have you been on the property? Um, just on 11 now, so yeah. So what did, for the first three years was, did you have to remove the orchard or had that already occurred? That's already gone, so it was traditionally a hay and horse farm when we moved here. Oh. <coughs> so a lot of, there wasn't much, I guess you'd say, soil life in the soil because um, it was just traditionally, you know, super phosphate MPK type ratio for the hay and for horses and horses, yeah. as we all know, compact the ground a lot. So we, um, what we did, we had a year and a half of adjusting just some Hereford cattle and we sort of intensively grazed the whole property and they basically put you know, manure all over the, the property um, and then, we, um, then they left here and then we sort of ploughed all the rows in and we found what that was, that sort of increased the soil biology just initially as a quick, because all the cow manure, as we know, is it's really good for that. So the worm, worm life came in, in like within sort of four months or something. There was no worms and then we had all these worms. So it was fantastic. <clears throat> and the advice we'd been given with growing sort of in a more microbe system was to basically let all the weeds or whatever you want to in those mounds of plough, let them all grow up, let them do their thing and then plough them back in and then you can Before they flower or just... Before they flower, yeah. yeah, so they don't yeah. have a, you don't have a seed bank problem. Yes. Yeah. So we did that and then, um, yeah, two years later we found we are having the issue like with the copper, so that's when we started using microbes. So, And I guess it's, the term microbes now, microbe brews, they use more because it's the old compost tea, puts a lot of people off, they think compost tea, or oh, that's a bit um, out there or, you know, that's... Or do they think it's old-fashioned? I mean, my grandfather, who would have turned 109 this week... Used to use that when my mum, who's 76, 
um, was a girl. Yeah, that's so, right. Yeah, I know. So, we, you know, we're almost going back to the way our grandparents and great-grandparents used to farm. And I guess we're doing it a bit more scientifically. But, yeah. But they were doing it because they knew that was the way to way to do it well that was handed down from <coughs> generation was. to generation that's what when you worked I guess. yes exactly that's right so i think um so what i guess you know compost tea to the general public and this is why we you know part of our pick your own we think it's really important because it educates consumers that it's not this airy fairy stuff it's actually going back to basics and basically letting nature do its own work in the ground so we found with blueberries because they're a understory I guess bush that grows in <clears throat> grows in a deciduous forest that's where they originated from they tend to like more of a um, an organic matter that's actually with mulch and leaves breaking down so they're really a fungal dominator type soil and being a in a monoculture orchard the way we grow things we had to use a bit of diversity and the only way we could do that was to use microbes to bring them in to create that diversity back again um, so we found that was, well, after three years, we found the plants were less reliant than on put, us putting organic fertilisers on even. So um, now we just use um, some fish and seaweed and then <clears throat> then we use the microbes once a year to... to oh, only once a year? Only once a year now. In the spring? In just the spring, as they're about to... To really flourish and yeah. get going. Yeah. yeah. And what's your <clears throat> yield been like? Or is that not something that you record given that you have a more of a pick-your-own... Yeah, kind so of. our pick your own is probably about 10 to 15% of our whole crop, right. and the rest of the crops are commercial to be sent to markets. But um, our yield uh, is probably in the last two years, as definitely as the bushes are getting older, has increased to sort of double what we're looking at. And the thing we've been really pleased about is the flavour. Well, of course. Of course. <laughs> you wouldn't expect anything less, would you, Kate? No, no. <laughs> but I mean, honestly, we talk, I mean, farmers often estimate their value or their success in terms of yield. They do, yeah. And that's a false economy, yeah. I think. Yeah, and I think, you know, it's one of those things, obviously you have to have yield to to make a, I guess, make a um, viable business out of it, but I don't think that's everything. Yeah. Um, and so we've, we sort of focused on getting a really good quality product that's you know, fairly sustainable, and, we, and the practices we're doing are a natural, more natural system, and we're basically letting, the way we look at it, the we're looking at the whole system looking after itself, so all we're doing is helping provide that system, keep the engine going, and the plants and the microbes actually work it out between themselves, Yes. and we find that's um, not only interesting, but it's actually very rewarding as well, yeah. It must be rewarding from a lifestyle factor as well because then you're not out here necessarily, I hope, 15 hours a day in summer trying to... Just ask to... my wife, Kate. Okay, right. <laughs> right. Yeah, I, I think it's... Um, you probably take on a more on a observing role of what the plants are telling you. So I think rather than say you, we'll do... Every two weeks we'll put out fish and seaweed. We still don't do that. We still go, oh, well, what are the... You know, what's the, the... The plants can almost tell you. After, once you become, I guess, attuned to what's going on, you can see the plants are telling you, oh, we need a, <clears throat> need a bit of a more boost with some fish because you, you can just tell the look of them. 
sounds a bit sort of corny. But, no, you know, that, no a, what you're describing is expertise. Yeah. And so what you're using is observation. Well, that's what I think anyway. What you're using is observation and you're relying on your expertise that you've accumulated over the last eight years to, to inform you, your decision making. Decision making, yeah. yeah. So, so we, we think long term our input costs, and we have seen already input costs are coming down because as the mulch that we put on starts to break down <clears throat> and we get a lot more fungal, you know, hyphae through all the mulch now. So as the mulch breaks down, it's providing its food source to the plants. And I think, you know, the general thinking of uh, hardwood chips and old sawdust, there's no nutrition in it. There's no nutrition in it if there's no good soil biology to break it down and no good fungi diversity to break it down because at the end of the day, that's where the plants got their food from before humans took them out of their natural environment. So. Well, what, I mean, that's, it's, it depends what your definition of nutrition is. What you're putting on is carbon. Correct, yeah. And that doesn't mean that it, I mean, that's an essential nutrient. That's how every single structure that's organic, as in it's alive, derived is derived from carbon. Yeah. So you're feeding carbon. You're not feeding nitrogen. You can get nitrogen out of the air. It's just naturally there. It is, yeah. yes. Yeah. And I think where a lot of a lot of growers who, in anything, where they sort of, I guess, not come into problems, but where they get a bit disillusioned because they start off doing this and then <clears throat> they don't see the rod results straight away um, and they still... It, I, I think if, if you're going to do it, you need to do it properly and correctly, otherwise... Now, the whole process of, like you say, can getting nitrogen out of the air, a lot of that can only really happen if you have a good soil health yes. there to do it. So you need that bacteria there to take that nitrogen and make it available. But if it's not there because you're using other chemicals aside that, it doesn't work. Yeah. And so then they get disillusioned with, oh, well, it doesn't really work. So go back to the old principles. So going into this with expectations about a three to four year process yeah. and understanding that there is no silver bullet. Yes, we all know that as farmers, don't we? We do. <laughs> and I think it's a manifestation of um, what's happening in our culture. We're always in our Western society looking for the magic fix and the silver bullet and the latest diet pill or, you know. <laughs> the quick fix. Or, or, or the latest bulker. <laughs> Um, if you want to build up your muscles, <laughs> that sort of bulking, not the other sort of bulking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear. <laughs> so, yeah, and I think um, I did a talk one year, going back five, six years ago, to some new growers, and um, one thing I said to them was that basically, I think there's almost three ways of farming. There's the people that get into farming because <clears throat> they think to make them a great dollar and it's just a financial decision they'll go into it and I think that's always a tricky one I think there's the next lot that actually do it because um, you know they've, they've handed down a farm and they continue on that practice and that's the way, way they sort of continue on and I think there's the next lot where I think a lot of like us all of us where we're passionate about what we're doing we're doing it it, it is a lifestyle we all we all know farming's a lifestyle because... <laughs> I'm not sure if, if there's any style about it. <laughs> I, I think if, if you, dip, if you uh, put a monetary value on all the hours that all most farmers do, you, you'd never go into you'd business. You'd weep. You'd weep. So I think you have to have 
you know, you have to be wanting to come out here when it's minus two and oh. it's raining and, you know, and you have years where it's not, things haven't gone quite so well. I think we have that resilience because we have the passion for what we're doing, yeah. um, which makes it, wouldn't say makes it easier, but makes it more be able to get through the whole thing. When you started putting biologicals on your soil, were you making them sell yourself or were you um, getting them from someone else or yep. how, so how does we, it work? Yeah, so we originally did buy some from um, the, a company that actually makes them, but <clears throat> we found what, what our issue was, and it doesn't relate to everybody, but what our issue was, because we had no soil biology here at all, it was very, our testing we had done was only like about four species of bacteria and about six species of fungi so it was really yeah nothing there so <clears throat> we found we made bit the bullet and we thought well let's go for the complete right way to do it and we had a person who actually bruised the bruised the microbes up so they use all local products so you know might get some willows or some gum or um, other species of material that's in the local district <clears throat> and um mulch all them together, compost them down, and then by doing that you have the diversity of the microbes that are sitting on all those products, all those sources of material, and then they're more resilient to the climate that's here as well. But the thing you're getting is more a diverse range of, you know, you're probably getting 30 to 40 different species of, of um, bacteria and then probably you know, 10 or 12 of different fungi as well. <coughs> So we found that made our whole growing system more resilient. Um, and also too, because my expertise wasn't in that area, we thought, well, we don't want to do it wrongly and then it puts it behind three or four years or you know, we cause an issue. So let's do it with someone who has the knowledge first and then we can learn off that and then eventually our aim will be that we can do our own one day. But um, at this stage, we're still not there. Mm. Do you still get your soil tested now? We do, yeah. How often do you do that? So for biologically testing, we do that every... Uh, we'll be doing next year, actually. We do that every four years, just to see where all the, the levels are sitting. Um, and our nutrition testing on, on the plants, we do every two years. Yeah. So you do... And, and what have you... what? What trends have you seen? This is really exciting. Yeah, Because this is one of my big questions, is if we're going to farm this way... Are we farming this way because it's the right thing to do for the environment, but is it also the right thing to do for our health? Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and one thing we found was that um, our potassium and phosphorus we had in the soil was was locked up to maximum levels. Like there was um, basically, I guess you put it, in almost like an infant supply of that, that nutrient in the soil. <clears throat> and what we found was that at different times, because it's in a living system, if we did the soil testing for those key elements in in autumn just after harvest it would show up a real high deficiency of those elements because the microbes are slowing down so they're not actually churning that locked up back into an availability for the plant and the plant doesn't really want that at that period of going into autumn they're starting to shut down but in springtime the results shown that we had lots of that available but yet it was actually showing on a generic testing it was all locked up so you'd have to add all this material so we'll find that was really pleasing that we know that we never really have to add phosphorus and potato those what mm. they call key elements mm. because we've got them locked up in there anyway mm -hmm. 
And blueberries are really a low requirement on phosphorus anyway, so we didn't have to worry about that too much. But we found the nutrition-wise, the whole system, the availability of what we have now is actually at a nice premium level, which is really good to know. What about the nutrition in the actual fruit itself? Have you looked at that? Yeah, we haven't looked at that yet, but that's one. That's our next step because with bio, biological growing and microbe farming, the, a lot of the research that comes out of the benefits to us as humans is that the minerals that are available in, the, in that food source are much higher than in a conventional system because you, you literally can't get those you know, naturally occurring minerals into a food system by pumping it, pumping it full of artificial things, whereas in a microbe natural system, they supply that to the plant. So that's it's bioavailable. It's I think, bioavailable. That's I think the that's word. The key, yes, that's the key. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think that's where the flavour comes into it. I think there's a lot of talk about bricks readings, you know, on fruit or you know, on food, and I think it's it's a really key indicator. But just because you have a good bricks reading doesn't necessarily mean you'll have a a good mineral content in your in because your food. a bricks meter tells you about the amount of sugar or carbohydrates. Carbohydrates, yeah. But it doesn't <clears throat> tell you about anything else. No, there, there is a there is a definite where you have the line when you do the reading, and there's the line between where you can do that reading. If it's really clear, you know you have a really good mineral content in your in your fruit. But the exact science of what that actually is, I'm still learning about all that. So, do you have a bricks meter? We do, so we do, do you that. Use it? We do. Yeah. Yes, we, that's a good question. As a farmer, is it? Do you have that tool? Do you use it? No. <laughs> <laughs> we do use it. Yes. <laughs> so we use it for um, uh, three three reasons. One, we use it for basically telling us what what's the readings in the fruit, but we also use it in springtime. It gives us an idea as the sugars that are moving in the plant, and whether we should start and put on you know, some fish or seaweed to um, start and help boost the soil microbes in the soil. Because um, obviously if the plant's um, carbohydrates and plant's sap's not moving quickly in springtime, there's no point trying to feed the microbes to give them more because they're not... They're not awake. Not awake. Mm. <clears throat> so we use it for that. And then um, we use it at the end of the season too when we start to see a bit of autumn colour and, and obviously your, your brick tree will be much lower because it's starting to withdraw the, the food source out of the leaves and the stems to put in its roots. So we're, if what we'll do is once we get to a, a level where we think the plant's starting completely and shutting down, then we won't add any extra fish and seaweed to the, to the system. Well, that's just a, a waste because <coughs> nothing's going to start using it. No. It's going to run off yeah. with the autumn, winter rains. It is, and it's just a waste of, you know, that oh, let's put it on every two weeks after we finish picking. Well, you don't really need to if you don't yeah. have to. Yeah. So, and, and we find if the plants are healthy in their own sense after the, the season of picking, um, we're almost in lead, we don't have to do too much because yes. we know the system's working really well. Um, I guess the only thing you always have to be aware of is obviously if you're taking a, a monoculture growing system and you're taking all that food source off that property... You're obviously withdrawing that particular nutrient source out of the whole system, so it's just a matter of monitoring that, which is why you know, we'll do it our soil testings every two years and then our microbe testing every five. I don't know how Flo, our border colleague, got down here, but she, I think she's telling us <laughs> enough talking, I think. 
I, I do want to know, what is it about fish that is really useful for the plant? We, we probably don't tend to look at what we're doing to the plants, more so what we're doing to the microbes in the soil. Mm -hmm. So um, the fish is really giving, giving the microbes in the soil a, a food source to, to help keep, kick them on from what they're already getting out of, out of the soil system that we've got. I wonder what it is in fish, though, that um, the microbes need. I think it's a bit... I mean, I'm still learning all this too, Kate, so, but I still think it's a bit like with seaweed. You have those... From the ocean, we know there's you know, really good mineral sources because obviously all the water systems run off into the ocean and push all that into the, into the water. So I think it's, it's giving all those mineral sources back into the soil... And we know that definitely that seaweed has a, had you know, enzymes and catalysts in it that help kick on microbes. I hadn't actually thought about the runoff from rain into streams and rivers, into oceans, and then the whole ecosystem <coughs> of the ocean as well. No. I hadn't no, and we I don't... Hadn't ever thought of this because, I mean, our soils are very old soils in Australia and very fragile soils and um, very deplete in certain... Certain minerals. minerals, and in Tasmania, of course, iodine, and of course, there's a lot of iodine in in seaweed. In seaweed, yeah, and presumably in fish, given <laughs> that that's what they tend to eat, <laughs> or they eat something that's eaten. That's that. eaten the seaweed. Yeah. Yes, yeah. So that makes a lot of sense. I hadn't actually thought about the the ecosystem, which is crazy because I like to think in systems. Yeah, and I think that's what you know, we look at the whole orchard. Not just just growing blueberries and to get a full income out of just the one thing. We, we look at the whole orchard as a whole system. So, as you can see, we don't have bird netting. So, one of our things that we do, we at this stage, apart from it is a very expensive thing to put in, but we also believe that we can use the natural ecosystem we have here. We have do have like two pairs of nesting swamp hawks that nest here through the spring and summer. And they constantly flying over and chasing the starlings and Brilliant. other birds. And, you know, we probably estimate we lose about 5% of our crop to birds. Um, and we have other sound devices. But we believe that the system we have now, with all the habitat we have around, with all the little, you know, wrens and wagtails and honey eaters, they all come into the orchard and they're eating all the different things. But the cost of the infrastructure, the maintenance and servicing of the infrastructure and the replacing when it can no longer be maintained. Be maintained. I mean, that that 5% loss would more than offset the cost of, of, of the labour and the materials. Yeah, yeah. And I think and it's know, better for the, the your your local landscape. Landscape. And I think, you know, the, the netting does provide a, a more of a wind break situation which is obviously very beneficial for blueberries that don't like the wind but we sort of look at it well there'll be parts of the orchard which sort of suffer a bit more as you can see these ones here where we're standing aren't quite as tall as the other ones because they cop more wind but it's a small percentage that you are sacrificing there yeah. but the whole the whole end product of what you're achieving which is that quality of produce and and quality of health healthy produce to give to consumers that's that's the key a couple of years ago, uh, blueberry rust made its way past our biosecure borders. Yes, yes. <laughs> and I know that... I was involved in a lot of that Oh, okay. inquiry, yes. So um, are you more prone to rust or less prone to rust than conventional... Oh, I'm with you. Yeah, I'm with you. Or, or is I it... I think 
I, I think the like the whole blueberry rust scenario is that blueberry rust is it eventually came into Australia in through in New South Wales, um, and it survives really well on on sort of temperate, humid conditions. So that's why in New South Wales they they've basically said that they can't, you know, that they don't they don't even look at eradicating it because it's almost impossible because the conditions are so right for it, and their growing seasons are so long so. The rust is, and they grow evergreen varieties too, which are per- perfect for the rust because they because they, they never lose their leaves. Lose their leaves. So, so the big argument was 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 that um, eradication here would be very hard to achieve because <coughs> we don't. They're saying they don't know whether or not by deciduous plants losing their their leaves, the rust f- spores fall on the ground. Do they survive through the winter months or not? There's a lot of strong evidence, and I believe that. The reason why we haven't seen rust here a lot in Tassie because we've traditionally grown deciduous varieties and our climate for that temperature, we generally get three months of good, cool weather where um, I think the rust then dies through the winter. <clears throat> Not scientifically proven yet, but um, we're hoping there's a few projects on the go which will prove that. But then soon as um, these semi-evergreen varieties started being coming to be brought into the state... Then all of a sudden you've got a vector there where it actually can hold on. Over winters. And over mm. winters. <clears throat> um, and the argument was, well, we'll never be able to get rid of it. But I, I think seeing now that um, we've had a few years now since the rust has been here and it hasn't rid its head again, um, I think you know, it's probably a really high possibility that we won't we won't see it again if we have good practices. So, so <clears throat> has it been eradicated from the um, it's still at this stage we haven't been given confirmation yet but it's still on one of the farms up north um, which is still under quarantine but they're hoping after this season that they'll, they'll be able to prove that coming to spring if there's no rust there that they'll be able to say well it's um, cleared out of the state which would be that would be, re- fantastic. Oh, be a fantastic thing get rid of rust get, get rid of fruit <laughs> fly Bingo! <laughs> and as we know, you know, Tassie, we we've got a special we've got special things going on here. We do. So, you know, we want to try and protect all this. And um, I think um, I, I, one of the things we've taken into account here, we we have put in a couple, or we're putting one variety of it's called Legacy, which is a semi semi deciduous one. It's a it's a more low chill variety. And we did that for climate reasons going forward. So if our winters aren't as coal well at least we have another variety which some years we're, which will compensate <clears throat> but what we do we actually um, spray a very light copper base on the on the leaves as we come into autumn let most of it drop off naturally and then we and that'll defoliate the plant itself so we put our own system in place where we can defoliate that plant and then um, come into spring we then give it a little bit extra than the deciduous varieties because because they don't go fully dormant they need a little bit of extra boost to to kick them on, yeah. yeah. So I think you know, I think a lot of growers and a lot of growers are doing what we're doing too. They're doing the same thing. Principles of if they have a semi-green variety, they'll defoliate it, and then eventually, hopefully, we can get it proven that that works scientifically. Because I think that's the key. We have to have it proven scientifically Absolutely. to say, yep, this works. All your plants defoliated through winter. We have three months. We can come out of it, and we know if it ever comes into the state again. We know that if you put those principles on that property correctly, coming out of that next winter, it'll be eradicated, which would be great. Evidence-based horticulture. Evidence-based horticulture. (laughs) 
Absolutely. <laughs> exactly. We expect it <clears throat> of uh, doctors. <laughs> she. <laughs> Why shouldn't we expect it of our agriculture? Of our agriculture, yeah. And I think then it gives market access much more confident that they can say, wow, you know, they've done their scientific research. They know that after a winter they can eradicate the disease off that particular property that had it. Yeah, no, we're happy to have that market still open. So it creates a lot of other aspects where confidence is the key. So we're talking about disease at the moment, which leads me to springboard to other pests and diseases, given that you have a monoculture yeah. crop, which all pretty much all horticulture is that, a monoculture. That's right. Um, you've created diversity in other ways. Have you noticed then, using the biologicals and creating the biodiversity on the property that you have less diseases? We did, yeah. And pests? Yeah, blueberries are pretty lucky in Tassie. They don't... We don't really get mildew. We don't <clears throat> don't get a lot of aphid issues. And obviously that we think a bit of that also because once you grow in a more um, biological system, the plants are much more resi- resilient. Um, we do know time to time you'll have a plant in the orchard for whatever reason, it'll get attacked by aphids. The cock, we have cockchafers in the ground, which are still there, which are part of the whole biological process as well. They, they're important to have too, but they'll just attack a plant. And the plants next to it are healthy, fine, but that one will be, all the roots will be eaten by the cockchafer, it'll have aphids on it. And it, it's basically like a natural system of killing yeah. that plant off because it was sick. Yeah. <clears throat> so we do see that, which I think is starting to show to us that our system's working and, and we only see pests and those sort of things when the plants are not healthy. It's really so interesting. It's fascinating that. It's really interesting. You're losing one plant in a row and your rows are, what, 50 metres long or 70 yeah, metres so long? Yeah, these are sort of our average rows, yeah. yeah. So you'll lose one plant yeah. in the row. It'll just get attacked for whatever reason. But you're not <clears> losing an entire row or neighbouring rows? No, no. Oh, fascinating. So, and you know, the, that the, is a, about a resilient. <laughs> Orchard, essentially. Do you call this an orchard? Oh, there's a bit of a... I don't want to upset too many blueberry growers. <laughs> Some say it's a bushery. A bush. <laughs> Some say it is an orchard, a, a grove. Oh, well, you I'm are not sure. in groves, so we can refer to it as an orchard. We thought that might have been grove. a bit clashing, you know, grove. We have a grove, a grove. <laughs> Anyway. But, yeah, no, and I think that comes back to that whole observing thing. When you grow yeah. things more biologically, you have to be observing what's going on. We, we, know you, we probably would have, if that happened, you would have gone, oh, no, we've got cockchafers, rafers, we'd be going spray. Yes. But in actual fact, you don't really need to. It's only on one particular plant because that was sick anyway. Yeah. And, and I think you can't look into it too scientifically because it's a bit like humans, you know, for some reason, or animals, they get sick. And we don't know why someone else gets cancer and someone else doesn't, you know. Like, why is that? It's, it's a yeah. genetic thing within the, the human, the, you know, people or the plant or... So, yeah, what we found, insect-wise, we don't have any issues. We did have, um, there's a little, it's almost like a, <coughs> not quite an elephant weevil, but it's a species of that which chews flowers and, and leaves. And when we first, when we started to change over... We started to have a few of them, which were probably one on every, you know, 20 plants we'd see. Um, but we, we let it go, and then 
um, now we've noticed we don't we probably see one maybe on a row of 120 plants <clears throat> and we and we think there's two reasons there one because the plant itself is not giving out signals that it's that now that it is healthy it's very mineral dense and the other one is we do see you know a lot of the birds come in and they'll eat these so it's yeah. it's a bit of a take it's for another, take isn't it it's another reason why you don't have the uh, the nets on yeah uh, back to blueberry rust do you think that the places that have got nets over their groves <laughs> um, are more likely to have blueberry rust because they're not getting the evaporative effect issue wind? yeah i wouldn't say they're more likely to get it but i guess they a bit, a bit like how they have issues with um they can have issues with sort of like different insects attacking them and um they can get probably more issues with mildew because there's not the airflow and it's more humid environment yes so yeah. I, I probably answer the question is that i wouldn't say they get more chance to get it but if they the get conditions it, would be more favourable. More favourable if, if it was introduced yeah. in there, yeah. yeah. Or yeah. harder to eradicate. Harder to eradicate. And that's why a lot of growers who do have netting, they do actually make sure that they you know, have their plants fairly well open so they can have more aeration and that sort of thing in their plants. So does that mean they plant them less densely? <clears throat> oh, no, they actually plant them more densely generally because cause they need to get that maximum <laughs> amount under the netting because the netting costs so much. So as you can see with our rows, we're like four metres apart. Yeah. And our plants are 1.2, so we're probably a, a metre further than most other growers. But, but but we believe the alleyways in the middle where the grass is, is just as important. Absolutely. This is, this is your diversity it is. as this, well. Yep. This so, is lots and lots of different plants. But we don't have the straight grass and a bit of clover. We have you know, plantain, there's dandelion, yep. there's a bit of dock. With the prunings, we actually throw them into the middle. And we have a flower mower which chops them up. And then we spray microbes over the top of them in spring. And we believe that's a good system in the middle. The roots from the bushes from the rows will come into the middle to, to feed on all that system. Um, and it becomes everything resilient. So there's all this biodiversity going on. And you're also <coughs> managing your waste. In and managing a, our waste. And improving the carbon by manage, in the soil by yeah. managing your waste. And as you can see, there's, there's four years of prunings there, which... I can't There's tell. none there, is there? All I can see are some deciduous leaves. Leaves that Beautiful are blown into... Leaves. Yeah. Yes. yeah. And, and I think, you know, pruning, you know, I guess traditionally you'd say, oh, prune, take your prunings away, that's diseased wood too. Yeah. You've got to go and burn it. But yeah. if you've got a good biological system, in its natural system, that those branches would fall off and lie on the ground or and be eaten up by the, the microbes and the fungi. So why would you go and throw that away you're only going to have an issue with disease if you don't have a healthy system so that's sort of do you know what I mean sort of compensates that I rather like the fact Mm. that you're putting the carbon into the soil and not into the air by burning it yeah I think that's really important as well and it's being very proactive in your whole system that you're putting that back in to feed the system again yes because that's how plants as we all know that's how plants survive because they they drop leaves or branches they get eaten up by the microbes and that supplies the food um, and, I, and I think that the thinking of sometimes the thinking is that oh that's not enough I've got to actually supply it with other nutrients but I think if you have a good healthy microbe system you don't don't have to worry well, about the microbes that. are then doing the work for you instead of you doing the it work is. running a tractor they do all the hard work roads. for us don't they, they? Do. <laughs> they do. and I think that's where our 
our whole name change of our business too. We were originally called Grove Blueberries because we're at Grove. <laughs> and then we, when we started to develop the system of the soil, we changed our name to something from the ground to represent basically that's where we believe everything starts. It's got to start from where the, the ground is. That's the engine system. And, I mean, what, why not let them... Let the microbes and nature do its work and we just sit back and, and monitor everything and um, enjoy the produce. Yes. Yeah. Is there anything else that you would like to say or that you want people to know about yeah. what you do and how you do I think, it? I think one thing, I guess, yeah, I'm 51 now, but I guess we're classified as a young farmer still. You are. <laughs> You're still below the average. Compared to the average. Average age. Yeah. yeah. And I think a lot of a lot of this comes back to, you know, it is a hard gig, and we all know that you know, it's you don't go into it to uh, earn a massive, <laughs> um, you know, living out of. We do it because we love and have the passion for what we do, and you know, we obviously want to make a living out of it. But I think um, my passion and interest really is to educate consumers about what farmers do and about how to produce good food, good quality food for our own health, because we know over the last you know, couple of decades it's <clears throat> we certainly deteriorate and a lot of the issues we have in society, um, you know, starting to be scientifically proven too that that's where it's coming from. Yes. So I think our health, health of our food is so critical and unless we as farmers take on that role to educate consumers, you know, we, can't, we can't then complain about it. So... That's why our pick-your-own that we do, I think, is really important. One of the things we do is I make sure that I go out with every pick-your-own person, take them out and explain what we do, explain what the product is, why we do certain things, and then then they sort of then flow on and ask sort of questions about what we do. So they're already learning straight away, and they can go away knowing that they've learnt something is really, really, really good. It helps engage them, though, in learning more about all of their food, not just where their blueberries come yeah. from, but where their yeah. meat comes from, where their eggs come from. And I think, too, how Kate... How their like, veggies are grown. Yeah, and I think the value of what it is worth, too. Because like, I think, you know, as we know, food is sometimes always considered, especially fruit and vegetables, it's always considered at the low-end spectrum of pricing. Yeah. But consumers are, consumers are quite happy to pay a little bit more for something that they know is good quality and that's been produced in the right way and it's good for their health and you know I think you hear some comments oh you know raising prices of food that's ripping people off and all this but it's not about that it's about educating consumers about what it's worth to us as us as who are growing things whether it be meat, meat livestock or whether it be food produce in salad and vegetables all that sort of thing so I think it's up to us as consu- as growers to tell consumers about it because sometimes they're they're ignorant they, they don't know any different um what's your favorite way to eat your blueberries just fresh off the bush just fresh off the bush part of my I guess quality control is that during the season every morning I have I have have to go out and taste the blueberries make sure that row is ready to pick so I get, I get my fair share every morning <laughs> to make up for the whole year. <laughs> uh, it's a good thing you like it, them. <laughs> or do well, you? <laughs> I, I love them and my son loves them, but unfortunately my wife and daughter don't like them. 
Oh, what? Is that, that's, that's just terrible, isn't it? Well, I hope they like the cheese. Let me take you back to our starting questions. How do spraying microbes on the soil affect the plants and their fruit? Why does this eliminate the need for synthetic chemicals and fertilisers? And what does this mean for the health of the plants and for the fruit that they produce? Tony's approach to farming has been one of respecting nature and harnessing her power to grow something from the ground. I feel like I have a better understanding of how we can incorporate regenerative principles into monocrops. Tony maintains diversity in plants across his whole property, which results in diversity in the animal and bird life also. This, in turn, benefits the blueberry monocrop within the landscape. On a local level, he increases biodiversity in the soil by adding bacteria, fungi and yeasts in the form of biological sprays. He then feeds those microbes with fish emulsions and seaweeds. By increasing the microbial activity in the soil, he has healthier plants that are more resilient to pests and diseases, so he doesn't need to use synthetic chemicals or sprays. He also has better tasting fruit, which has been linked in science to better nutritional quality. So what does this mean for us? Well, for me, it means I choose to support the growers like Tony, who are farming in a holistic manner, caring for their entire system and feeding the soil. He's improving the organic matter in his soil, which means that he's sequestering carbon in the soil and helping to offset carbon emissions. And he's doing all of this while producing a fruit that not only tastes better, but has better health benefits for us too. As Tony says, if you pay for good quality food, your health will benefit. And I'd add, so will the health of the planet. I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Curious Farmer. If you too have questions or any comments about this episode, please contact me at thecuriousfarmer at gmail.com. If you like this podcast, please share it with your friends and subscribe. If you can, rate and review it. It keeps me going and makes it easier for other people to find. Till next time.